Well, open your Bibles with me to Genesis chapter 1. And I am reminded of this phrase as I have been encountering this study over the last two weeks. There's a phrase called, this is eating my lunch. Have you ever heard that? Have you ever said that? <laughs> well, let me just be very frank and honest with you. Genesis 1, 1 and 2 is eating my lunch. <laughs> the reason is the amount of information that necessarily needs to be sifted through, it needs to be explained that offsets what we hear and what we've been exposed to is just so enormous that I say again, it is impossible to say all that needs to be said. And so I've, I've tried to confine myself to about 30 minutes as a, um, as a reasonable attempt at bringing out what is necessary and, and leaving some important stuff very very much unsaid, and that's very difficult for me to do. So this has been a very, very challenging study. We'll move on from 1, 1, and 2 next week and begin to look at the days of creation. Uh, I can't speculate how many days we'll get in one message, so we'll just see where we go. But as we look here, we continue in the study of 1, 1, and 2. As a reminder, it's widely accepted and understood that Moses is the author of this book. As Scripture affirms, probably written, though there's no certainty of that, probably written during the wilderness wanderings, the 40 years that they were waiting for their entrance into the promised land. And very, very clearly, the book of Genesis has God as its theme, and most especially, He is the subject of creation. As we look at what it is He has done, it is very, very clear that this is really all about God. So in looking at Genesis 1, one, we highlighted three important truths, and they do need to be mentioned here as a reminder. The first thing that we looked at is that God is real. Now, to us as Christians, to those who believe the Bible, we say, yeah, we know God is real. But it's important for us to remember that the much of our world around us isn't quite certain that God is real, especially with the amount of information that is poured into our lives through science and through the alleged expertise and fallibility of science. But God is real, and as you go through the Bible, this becomes more and more clear to us. The identity of this God that in here in this verse is called Elohim, He would come to have many, many names in the Bible that would enhance our understanding of who He is. The the, The title El Shaddai, the Lord God Almighty. El Elyon, the Most High God. Yahweh is Jehovah, the all-encompassing name for the great I Am. Jehovah Ra'ah, the Lord, my shepherd. Jehovah Shalom, the Lord is peace. Jehovah Sabaoth, the Lord of hosts. And many, many other names that convey to us something about this great God that is identified here as the one that created the heavens and the earth. The identity of God is continuing all throughout the Old Testament revelation. And it continues into the gospel accounts. In fact, we would read in John 1, in the opening verses, where the apostle John picks up on Genesis 1, and he says this, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. And there is no Jew of John's day that would not immediately 
really recognize the phrases that is used here to understand that what was said about God in the Old Testament is now being proclaimed about Jesus in the New. So the identity of God, the reality of God is made very clear to us in Genesis 1.1. Secondly, God is real. I didn't do that on purpose. God is eternal. The phrase in the beginning highlights something very, very important for us. And that is the concept of the beginning of time. Not the beginning of God, but the beginning of time. This this idea of eternity is very difficult for us because for us everything is defined by time. Absolutely every part of our life is defined by time beginning at our birth and culminating in our death and everything in between is marked by time but God is beyond time. He transcends time. He is not defined by time. God has always been. There's never been a time when God didn't exist. There will never be a time when God doesn't exist. God is eternal. He has always been. Thirdly, God is creator. So the majority of modern science today rejects the notion that there is a deity behind creation. With the influence of naturalism, the prevalent idea is that creation is the result of a natural phenomenon and not the work of God. Naturalism is rooted in the belief that God does not exist. So to oversimplify this central disagreement between those who hold to the truth of the Bible and that which is portrayed in modern science, as you see in your notes there, mankind either believes in a supernatural creation event or mankind believes in a natural creation event. You really can't straddle the fence there. It is either created, the world is either created by God intentionally through His creative power, or it is a natural event that exists within the phenomenon that we generically call the universe. So if the if creation is the result of a natural event, there are many, many questions that cannot be answered. For example, what was the first cause that caused everything else? If there was a time when there was absolutely nothing, where did the first something ever come from? Naturalism has no answer to that. Where did matter come from? Where did energy come from? What holds everything together and what keeps everything going? You see, naturalism cannot answer those questions. They can only speculate as to how they think it might have happened or how they think it continues to happen. But it just isn't definable with what is widely understood to be the root truth within science, and that is the empirical method. Science deals with what can be observed and reproduced by experimentation. The origin of life cannot be observed, nor can it be, re- re- nor can it be reproduced in any laboratory. It just cannot be so. So what is currently being portrayed as scientific fact is actually the result of speculation based upon what cannot be observed or replicated in a laboratory environment. So as we continue in our study of the summary of God's creative work, and by the way, that was a summary of about 45 minutes worth of talking. As we continue in our study of of God's creative work, we read together Genesis 1, 
1 and 2, we double the amount of Scripture we go through. (laughs) But we really don't get very far. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was formless and void, and darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was moving over the the surface of the waters. Now we're adding verse 2 to our study. And in all reality, there is an equal amount of information that needs to be sifted through that could very accurately be applied to what it is we've talked about so far. And we'll add a little bit to that, but also setting the stage for what is going to come. So the general work of creating the heavens and the earth is summarized in verse 1. We'll talk more about that as we get into the days of creation and some of the differing theories or ideas that are a part of the creation of the heavens and the earth. So Moses, identifying the heavens and the earth as God's creation, he He uses what is called a mirrorism, which is a statement of two opposites to indicate a totality. Now that gets kind of confusing, but basically we talk about the earth, what we can see and what we can touch and feel and stand on what is a part of our present reality. And we talk about the heavens, the expanse that is out there that we can see but we really can't touch. And most certainly in the days of Genesis and Exodus and all throughout the Old Testament and New Testament, you couldn't venture out into the heavens. You could jump, but you really can't get very far. And so it is a mirrorism, it is a statement of two opposites to indicate a totality. In the beginning, God created everything there is in all of creation. Think about that. Everything that is a part of this created world is summarized in verse 1, God created the heavens and the earth. The scope of the heavens is that what God created is continually being discovered. Now think about it like this. What can you see with your natural eye about the heavens? Well, you can see the night sky. You can see the moon. You can see the stars. You can even see the stars twinkling. You can sometimes even see a star moving. But what you can observe with your eye is incredibly limited and the vast scope of God's creation is continually being discovered. Let me read something for you that gives some legs to this idea. You've heard the name Stephen Hawking. He is the modern, until his death, he is the modern expert in in physics He is called the most brilliant theoretical physicist since Albert Einstein. He wrote a best-selling book called A Brief History of Time. And here are some of what he says in this book. This is absolutely mind-boggling. And I would venture to say that there's a, a vast amount of accuracy in what can be observed, but the conclusions that are drawn, not necessarily so accurate. So here is what he says. He says... Our galaxy is an average-sized spiral galaxy that to other galaxies looks like the swirl in a pastry roll, and that is over 100 light years across. Now, light year, we don't really understand what that means. A light year is a measurement of length, not time. 
So this galaxy is 100,000 light years across, which is about 600 trillion Miles. Now here's a picture of our galaxy. That is that pastry swirl that you can see from one of the telescopes orbiting in space as it takes a picture of the Milky Way. It is 100,000 light years across or about 600 trillion miles. That's the distance from one end of our galaxy to the other. He goes on to say, we now know that our galaxy is only one of some hundred thousand million that can be seen using modern telescopes, each galaxy itself containing some hundred thousand million stars. Wait a minute. You know how difficult it is to find a converter that would actually put those numbers so that you could see them with a one and a number of zeros that come after that? It's astronomical. It is commonly held that the average distance between these 100,000 million galaxies, each of which on average contain 600 trillion miles, the average distance is 3 million light years. Remember, light year is a measurement of length, not time. A light year is equal to approximately 5.8 trillion miles. To put that in perspective, it would take the space probe Voyager, which is orbiting our Earth, or excuse me, out in space, traveling through our galaxy, the space probe Voyager travels at around 35,000 miles an hour, it would take the space probe Voyager 1,700,000,000 years to travel across our galaxy. Think about that. 1,700,000,000 years to travel across the galaxy known as Milky Way. And the Milky Way is one of several hundred thousand million galaxies. It's incalculable. And yet, God created it all. And Moses summarizes the magnificence of that creation when he says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The awesomeness of creation is displayed all throughout the Bible. One of the great passages that talks about the glory of creation can be found in Job 38. The book of Job, as you know, is Job's account of God who had richly blessed him and then took it all away. And in Job 38, when Job is nearly at the end of it all, he is questioning God for allowing this suffering. He is questioning God's sovereign rule and reign over his life specifically. And here's what God says to Job. This is strong. This is what God says, beginning in Job 38, verses 3 through 11. He says, Now gird up your loins like a man, and I will ask you, you instruct me. Oh my goodness. Oh my goodness. Talk about shrinking away. When God says, gird up your loins like a man and you teach me. God goes on to say, where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me 
if you have understanding? Who set its measurements, since you know? Or who stretched the line on it? Or what were its base, in what, on what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone? When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? Or who enclosed the sea with doors? When bursting forth it went out from the womb? When I made a cloud its garment and thick darkness its swaddling band? And I placed boundaries on it and set a bolt and doors? And I said, Thus far you shall come, but no farther. And here your proud waves stop. Think about that. Think about the boundaries that God has created for the oceans that we have set our feet on. Oh yeah, well there's this thing called gravity. And gravity is, is working between the moon and the earth and it's at the exact amount that the water doesn't come any further. Who established that? Where did that come from? Is that just a natural phenomenon? that happened apart from the intentional work of a divine being with immense power and wisdom to be able to establish that, the tilt that the earth rotates on, the speed that it rotates, the distance the earth is from the sun and from the other planets. Where did that come from? Well, it just happened. Really? Tell me how it happened. Well, you see, when you calculate the blah, 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 Oh, really? So you don't have an answer for that. All you have is a lot of scientific jargon that is the result of your speculation that is rooted in empirical method that can't be produced. Absolutely amazing what God has created that Moses summarizes and in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. My goodness. Genesis 1-2 moves from the general description of creation and begins to focus specifically on the creation of the earth. Verse 2. The earth was formless and void and darkness was over the surface of the deep and the Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters. Now in verse 2, Moses uses three parallel sentences that describe earth at its inception before it was made a suitable place for human life. So as we go into our new, the new portion of our outline, the earth was formless and void. The phrase means the earth was empty, it was unproductive, it was an uninhabited place. It was not suitable for human life, nor for the animals or the vegetation that God would later create. It is lifeless and barren. The features of the earth as we know it were undifferentiated. They were unseparated. They were unorganized. And they were uninhabited. It was formless. It was empty. It was without any shape. This is in stark contrast to what will be created. This is why when God finishes each aspect of creation, He says, and it was good. It is bringing the reader back to what God has created as a contrast to what the earth was in the instant it was created. It was formless and it was void. Uninhabited, and not able to sustain life. This is why 
God declares every part of creation as good. So before God created the earth in its present form, it was simply a blank canvas without His handiwork brilliantly displayed upon it. Think about it like that. Think about the earth in its in the instant it was created as a blank canvas and God is going to create something amazing out of absolutely uninhabitable emptiness that was known as the earth as it was created. It was barren and lifeless and the earth was dark. Darkness was over the surface of the deep. The earth was in total darkness. There was no light of any kind. That's very difficult for us to even imagine. And if you think about ever being in a room of absolute darkness without any semblance of light, nothing creeping under a door or through the window, nothing radiating through a wall, no light of any kind, it is very disorienting to be in a totally dark place. And this was this is how the earth is described in its infancy, that there was no light of any kind. Now the surface of the deep means the waters. And so the entirety of the earth was covered in water. It was a vast ocean without any light, without any life. The initial state of the earth was that it was empty, It was barren, it was covered by water, and it was in pervasive darkness. This is the picture image that we have. And what verse 2 goes on to say, and God was moving. In the vast universe that God has created, spread over hundreds of billions of miles, we find here in verse 2 that God was moving over the surface of the waters of the earth. The earth was formless and void. The surface of the earth was covered in water and in total darkness. And here God is uniquely at work in the creation of of the earth. Now this might seem like a very minor statement in this account that Moses is is beginning to give to us, but it is actually an incredibly major detail in the creation account. Think about that. Think about the planets and our solar system. In our galaxy, the Milky Way, the 13 planets that are there in its vast space And the reality that there are potentially hundreds of millions of other galaxies and what God has created, here, God is moving over the surface of the deep, uniquely focusing His his attention on planet Earth. Now, the planets in our solar system, when viewed from space, all have a form and a unique beauty. And we look at them and we go, wow, that is just incredible. Look at the beauty that is displayed. Look at how wonderful and how marvelous these individual planets are. And each of them are barren wastelands. Every single one of them. There's no life on any of them. There's no prospect of life as we know it on any of them. And while they were all created by God, they lacked the specific 
and unique characteristics of earth that make life of earth that make life as we know it not only possible but able to absolutely thrive. Our galaxy, the Milky Way, one of possibly hundreds of billions of galaxies in the universe, and in the vastness of all of God's creation, the Bible tells us that God is focusing His special and unique attention only here on planet Earth. His Spirit is hovering or moving over the surface of the waters of the deep. Now the word there for for moving is hovering in many translations. And the translation of that word conveys the idea of caring for, superintending over, or supervising over. And it communicates a picture image of in all of the vastness of God's creation, here He is paying incredibly special attention to what must be like a little golf ball and the vastness of the universe, and God is saying, this is where I am going to focus my attention. This is where I am going to exhibit the love and care and concern that I have for my creation that is magnificently and wondrously displayed throughout all of the universe, which mankind isn't even going to discover for thousands and thousands of years. Planet Earth is going to be unique and special. Now, in the verses that follow, all throughout the remainder of chapter 1 and and through chapter 2, we're going to look at the detail of God's creation of this special and the unique planet. So, I'll spend a lot of time in the detail of creation and fleshing out some of these other things, but I want to add a few things to what's already been said about verse 1 and about what we're looking at here in verse 2. So, while verse 1 is widely understood to be a summary of creation... Verse 2 portrays the special focus that God is going to provide in the creation of the earth. It's an introduction for the detail of God's creation that will come in the verses that follow. And in these, between these two verses rather, there's what's known as the gap theory. People that want to inject a significant amount of time before verse 2, and after verse 1. So let me read these again. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In the gap theory, they want to inject a long period of time, perhaps billions of years, before God set His attention on the creation of planet earth. Now, the gap theory has a lot of variation to it, where they inject a speculative amount of time based upon theories that cannot be discovered in the Bible. They can only become the result of speculation and conjecture on a godless modern science approach. And what they basically say is that the original world that existed in Genesis 1-1 was destroyed and then recreated and described this creation and the six days that are described throughout the account of creation in Genesis. Now there's many variations of this with the length of time and how it all worked out, but basically it is a secular idea of injecting a certain amount of lo- a certain amount of idea of long ages into the Bible. The Bible mentions nothing about this. It is very simply the result of speculation that can't be proven. So to go along with the gap theory is another modern 
critical analysis of the creation account, and that is the old earth versus the young earth. And I'm sure you've heard something about old earth and young earth theory. We could spend hours dissecting all of that. So science, for the most part, promotes the idea that the earth is millions, hundreds of millions, perhaps even billions of years old, and yet the Bible's extensive genealogies, which can be traced from Jesus all the way back to the beginning of Adam and Eve, can only account for several thousands of years. When science denies the existence of a supernatural creation event at the hands of a divine being, they're left to force their conjecture into a biblical account that can't be verified within the biblical account, nor can it be proven beyond a shadow of a doubt within the scientific world. You hear all kinds of things about carbon dating, and they find fossils, and they give it a date, and then 10, 20 years later they say, well, that's not accurate, it's really not anywhere near that old, or they say, well, that's not actually what we thought it was, and I mentioned this very briefly last time, you had, for example, um, the Nebraska man bone that was thought to be hundreds of millions of years old, and they said, no, it's not even a, a human bone, it's really from a pig. And you had the Lucy bone, which was thought to be millions of years old, where she died falling out of a tree. And they said, well, no, it's really not that old. So there there isn't even agreement within geology about the age of fossils or how to date them or accuracy within the dating process they go for. They go through. We could spend lots and lots of time talking about that. I would refer you to Ken Ham, who has dealt with a lot of these issues in great detail. And he is really a modern-day expert in all things related to Genesis and creation. So we will look at these briefly as we go throughout the creation discussion, but for the sake of time, much of geology forces speculation predicated upon the concept that the earth is billions of years old, and we can look at some of the the major theories within physics that don't support some of those speculative conclusions. But even within Christianity, there is a debate about Old Earth versus Young Earth, and it's centered around what we will begin to look at next time, and that is how does one interpret the word day? When you go through the creation account, it will say, and that's, that ends day one, or that is the end of the first day. And so when people look at the word day, they tend to want to interpret it if they if they believe in an old earth theory as a day being an epoch or an era, not a 24-hour period. And so to force a speculative old earth account into the biblical account, they retranslate the word day as an era that can be thousands or tens of thousands of years long. But as we go through the account of creation and the detail that is prescribed there, it is presented to us as a little 24-hour day that is defined by the sun and the moon, the light and the darkness, and each of those ended a day. Nothing in the biblical record supports the idea that creation was completed in eras or in epochs of time, but literally in a 24-hour period. So verses 1 and 2 describe the absolute beginnings, the initial stage in creation of the earth, that is brought about to completion during the six days. 
climaxing in the consecration of the seventh day, the day of rest, where God rested. That becomes a pattern that gets taught throughout the Old Testament and even brought into the New Testament, and that is it's good for man to have a day of rest. And we'll talk more about that as we go through it. So there's a few things that I want to point out about these two verses as we close the book here and move into the specifics of creation. Creation is the first of four major themes in the Bible. Creation is very, very quickly followed by the fall. The fall is very, very quickly followed by the promise of redemption. And that is very quickly followed by the hope for restoration. The four major themes in the Bible, creation, the fall, redemption, and restoration. Within the days of creation, and even some of what you see in these first two verses, they in many ways are a foreshadowing of the fall and redemption and restoration as the revelation of Scripture and as God's dealing with man who has fallen begins to get portrayed to us through through the biblical account. So each of these four major themes are established in Genesis. The account of creation is designed to show the creative power of God, which is unfathomable to the human mind. You know, it really should be the result or the conclusion that a modern scientist draws, or let me rephrase, it should be the result of a modern scientist who has the ability to look in the vast universe of God's creation and simply say, this is unexplainable. It's just not explainable. Something or someone had to create this. It just couldn't happen out of nothing. So the creative power of God is articulated in such a way that the reader is left to just say, wow, that is absolutely amazing. With God's infinite power and wisdom, He simply spoke the Word and all that is was made to be. In creation, all that God created was good. As we will see, God created the earth and its inhabitants to live in a, in a unique and special fellowship with Him, to know Him, and to enjoy Him, and to live under His loving care. He even created a special place for this relationship to be experienced, and that is the Garden of Eden, a literal place where a literal Adam and Eve literally walked and fellowship with God and experienced His presence, Daily in the, in the garden, in the cool of the evening. So the uniqueness of this creative beauty that unfolds is a contrast to the earth's original state where it was dark and empty and void of any life. And so biblically, darkness represents the absence of God and the prevalence of sin which is always portrayed throughout the Bible. Darkness in the Bible is always equal to the absence of God and the presence of sin. The earth was once lifeless and and void, empty. It describes our spiritual state after the fall, where we are birthed into sin, and apart from the creative work of God, we cannot know new life. 
As a result of the fall, man is plummeted into sin and darkness, expelled from the garden and separated from God. And the work of redemption is to create a way for man to get back to God. And this is explained and foreshadowed throughout all of the Old Testament, fulfilled in the New Testament. And so what we conclude here in Genesis 1, 1 and 2... I'm sorry. Genesis 1, 1 and 2. And as God paid special attention to the creation of the earth to bring it life, to bring to it life out of lifelessness, He pays special attention to our need for redemption and provides life from Himself in the person of His one and only Son who comes into the world as a ransom for that which was fallen. 1 and 2 is done. We will refer back to the principles that are established here as we go through the days of creation. But just reading through these two verses in its simplicity ought to cause us to recognize the infinite power and wisdom and love of God to create something uniquely inhabitable for mankind to know Him and to enjoy Him. To come to know His love, His provision, and to instill a deep sense of hope in a restoration of what is to come when God makes all things new again. Would you pray with me please?